you know, having access to safe and inclusive workplaces, I think, I feel, I know, we know that is a basic human right, right? To be able to attend work and, and feel welcomed, included, and be free from harassment and violence. It's a basic human right. Free to Grow in Forestry, a podcast working to move forestry forward. Canadian Institute of Forestry and the Center for Social Intelligence proudly present the Free to Grow in Forestry podcast. The Free to Grow in Forestry initiative was launched to create a diverse and inclusive workplace culture where all Canadians feel they belong. We believe strongly that inclusive cultures not only strengthen our Canadian forest sector economy, but also create resilient and healthy communities. This podcast seeks out guests from all aspects of the forest sector, from the C-suite to every part of the underrepresented communities, to open up the dialogue on issues of concern and points of view so that everyone has greater knowledge and understanding of each other. By unearthing these discussions, we hope to stimulate greater empathy and respect for all people, opening up the forest sector to be more welcoming and accepting of everyone. For our 16th episode, we are pleased to be joined by our host, Kelly Cooper, founder and CEO of the Center for Social Intelligence, and our guest, Umberto Carollo, executive director at White Ribbon. As a gender-based violence specialist, Umberto discusses how we can prevent and end gender-based violence and discrimination, invest in equal human rights, and remove barriers to create change. This session was recorded live on October 19th, 2022. Welcome everyone, my name is Kelly Cooper. I am the host of the Free to Grow in Forestry podcast and the president and founder of the Center for Social Intelligence. Very excited to be with you today and discuss a very important topic in our country related to gender-based violence. Every year from November 25th to December 10th, Canadians observe 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. It is an opportunity to come together to call out, speak up and renew our commitment to end gender-based violence against women girls, and LGBTQS plus individuals. In Canada, we also observe the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women, remembering the women who were murdered during the tragic mass shooting at Polytechnique Montreal on December 6, 1989. November 25th was designated in 1999 as the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women by the United Nations General Assembly. The date was chosen to commemorate the lives of the Mirabelle sisters from the Dominican Republic who were violently assassinated in 1960. The day pays tribute to them and urges global recognition of gender-based violence. Each year on this day, governments, international organizations, and NGOs are invited to organize activities designed to raise public awareness of the pervasive issue and its devastating impacts on individuals, families, communities, and society as a whole. Today, I am joined by Umberto Carollo, Executive Director of White Ribbon. He is a gender-based violence prevention specialist with over 20 years experience in the not-for-profit sector. He serves on the External Advisory Council for the Department of National Defense and Canadian Armed Forces Sexual Misconduct Response Centre and is a member of the Religions for Peace Standing Commission on Advancing Gender Equality. I wanted to speak with Umberto today about what gender-based violence is all about and the role corporate Canada can play to help reduce 
it because it's more often than not seen as just an issue for larger society to address. So hello, Humberto, and welcome to the podcast. It's good to connect with you again. Hello, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with you telling our listeners what White Ribbon does and how it came about in the first place. Yes, so White Ribbon uh, has its roots in that horrific uh, incident that you mentioned, the December 6, 1989 Montreal massacre, where 14 women uh, were murdered by a young man who felt that women shouldn't be uh, in an engineering school, who blamed women for the fact that he himself wasn't able to attend the school. And it, it was tragic, a very tragic uh, moment for, for Canada and for everyone around the world, really. And White Ribbon was created two years after that by a group of men who felt that men were largely absent from the dialogue, from the conversation that was taking place at that time. A conversation that was calling on, on Canadians to think about whether that tragic incident was just another incident of mass shooting or whether it was symbolic or representative of the kind of inequalities, gender inequalities that exist in Canadian society and around the world. So White Ribbon was created as a way for men to step forward and to support the feminist movement, to support women leaders and, and women's organizations who had been at the forefront of this work. And they created the White Ribbon as, as a symbol and a pledge for men to never commit, condone, or remain silent about all forms of gender-based violence. So that's that's how the organization was started as a grassroots movement. And really, the intention of that group of men was for men anywhere, anyone, anywhere and everywhere to adapt the concept of the White Ribbon, to bring it into their local communities and workplaces and to engage more men and boys in this important conversation. Such important work and so forward looking at that time, I'm sure. Okay, so can you define for us and um, for the listeners what gender-based violence includes so we are all operating from the same baseline of information? Yes, absolutely. So gender-based violence is any form of violence that is directed at individuals or groups because of their gender. So historically, uh, women, girls, uh, gender non-binary folks have been disproportionately impacted by that violence and that discrimination. And by violence, we don't just restrict it to physical violence. We understand violence as in its broader sense. Violence as, yes, physical forms of violence, sexual violence, emotional, psychological violence, faith-based violence, economic violence. And it's the kind of violence that happens in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, and in our institutions. And it's violence and discrimination that has led to the historic rates of inequality, of sexual harassment, of violence in our homes, and the exclusion, the underrepresentation of women and LGBTQ folks gender non-binary folks in workplaces and in institutions in our society in general. That is excellent because a lot of people think about gender-based violence in just the physical context or, or the sexual context. So it's really great that you've given that broader knowledge for folks. The other piece that I really like from what you've shared is the uh, educating us all on how it's everywhere. It's pervasive. It's, it's yes. not limited to a certain sector or socioeconomic class or race or religion, it's everywhere. And we all have to be cognizant and aware of how we can address the issue and, and have tools to do so. 
So with that in mind, what are the most pressing issues in addressing and preventing gender-based violence in Canada today? Well, I would say, Kelly, it's because of exactly that. It's so pervasive. It's everywhere. It's in our homes, in our communities, our workplaces. It's in our institution. And, and that violence and that discrimination and exclusion is rooted in centuries-old norms and practices and, and systems of discrimination. And it's difficult to prevent, to put an end to that without you know broad-scale culture change. And we haven't achieved that yet. And we continue to struggle in our society, in our workplaces, in our institutions, in our communities to achieve that culture change. It's very stubborn and it's very ingrained. It's because we're, you know, we're all our generations, present generations and past generations were born and raised into this system of, of discrimination and violence. So we need to get down to its roots and we need to remove the barriers. We need to rethink and shift those cultures and those systems that lead to the continuation of this violence. And, and we need to do that at various levels from the individual change of norms and beliefs and attitudes to the systems change and changing policies and changing practices and changing representation and leadership and so forth in our workplaces and in our institutions. And it's taking too long. Like, I'm impatient. You know, research shows that if we continue at the current pace, it's going to take us 200 years to achieve full equality and to remove that violence. So that, to me, is the most pressing issue. It's how entrenched this is and uh, and how difficult it is to change around. And it's um, we're still lacking the, the, the leadership, the political will, the fortitude, and the bravery, the courage of of institutions and workplaces to take this on head on and to see it as their responsibility. We also have in, in Canada systems of oppression that intersect with gender-based violence, and that is our history of colonialism, the fact that our Indigenous people, particularly women and girls, have really experienced higher rates of violence and discrimination, of murder, of uh, you know, disappearances, and, and poverty, and, and lack of access to resources and, and opportunities at rates that are much higher than the general population. And that is because of our history of colonialism. And we need to do better to really accept and put actions into the recommendations from the truth and reconciliation process from the murdered Indigenous women and girls report. So there's there's so much work to do. And there's certain things that once in a while pop up and ex exacerbate the problem even further, such as the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that that pandemic led to significant rise of, of violence in our homes and in, in our community. So this is a complex problem that requires complex, uh, deep-rooted solutions, and it requires the right level of resources, but also it requires the, the willingness, the hearts and minds of everyone everywhere from fathers in their homes to male CEOs and, and from leaders in male-dominated sectors, from our political leaders, from our institutions to, to have the courage and, and the bravery to put an end to this violence and discrimination once and for all. Yeah. Uh, so when we talk about having courage, people need, I guess, first start with awareness, as we always do with any topic like this, yeah. and, uh, getting people engaged. And then it's like, okay, well, okay, now I know I have a role as a father or as a leader, but how do you uh, actually put that into place? And how do you hold folks accountable? And how do you measure all that? Like, I guess there's measurement in terms of success of not having any issues, but I guess uh, if you could expand on what your thinking is on how you actually put that into action and hold folks 
accountable. Yeah, well, if we think at it at an individual level, with the example that you just provided, you know, a father who is deeply committed to equality and healthy relationships and teaching their uh, their kids about consent and so forth, you know, the the impact of measurement there is a much more uh, healthy holistic, uh, much more cohesive family, one that is to, where family responsibilities are equal, uh, equally shared amongst all, all the parents. And, and the kids are learning really healthy, positive ways of relationships or positive examples of relationships that then they can use as they grow up into their adult years. It's, it's about um, equal representation in the workplace on the board of directors of, of organizations and institutions. It's about seeing women, diverse women and folks who've been historically excluded from positions of leadership have those opportunities, equal opportunities to men. It's about male-dominated sectors and industries having a much greater parity when it comes to uh, gender representations in, in their workplace and the representations of folks who've been excluded historically. It's about measuring the rates of, of sexual harassment and sexual violence and the incident, those incidents as they show up in the workplace. It's about tracking those incidents, reporting on them and, and seeing a, an overall decrease in those over time. It's about women having access to safe and inclusive opportunities to uh, step into our political institutions as leaders, as decision makers, as having equal seats at the table and, and to be part of the planning, the implementation, the rollout of, of initiatives everywhere. It's about workplaces recognizing the importance of equality in terms of uh, engaging their employees, in terms of measuring economic uh, impact and, and productivity and, and safety in the workplace and, and diversity in the workplace. So those are all the different ways in which we can measure change. And unfortunately, we're not there yet. We're still seeing a tremendous gap in across all industries from male dominated to, to others, even, even where, you know, in sectors where women have traditionally been overrepresented on the front lines. If you take a look at the leadership at the top, most often they are underrepresented in those leadership positions, right? So, so, it's so a, to me, if I can say like what you're telling me is it's a very systematic issue and we can't have little one-off situations. Obviously it's not going to work. It's not working. No. To me, when I listen to what you're saying, it comes down to people wanting to maintain power and control. And whether it's at the workplace and feeling uncomfortable with that erosion, or perhaps in the home, there's maybe a, a need for control on certain things. Like, how do you address that? Well, and that's that's by helping people understand that having power and control is not necessarily in this, in their best interests either. So what does it mean for a father to have power and control in the workplace? It means working extra hours. It, it means having the burden of the decision making. It means having limited access to innovation and, and diverse thinking and uh, limited connections to the communities where that particular workplace is present or um, sells products to or engages uh, in. It's about helping men understand that with great power, and, and uh, privilege also come responsibilities. And it, there comes costs as well to their own lives because 
you know, men are taught that they need to be the breadwinners, that they need to succeed at all costs. And, and so what does that mean for their engagements with their family, the, the time that they uh, may not be able to spend with their children and informing those early emotional, strong bonds with their kids as, as they grow up because they're dedicating all of their time to, to the workplace. It's about the impact of an unbalanced work life has on, on men as well. And again, uh, men work at all costs. They're taught to be that way. That's what they're expected to be because of those stereotypical and centuries old norms that tell us that we need to be out there being breadwinners. And But what does that do to our mental health, to our ability to care for ourselves, to take time off for ourselves and for our families? What does it mean to go at all costs? What does it mean to, to be in the workplace, to show up in the workplace with only control and dominance as, uh, you know, traits that it's okay for us to exhibit? What about the emotional needs, our vulnerabilities, our, how do we address or not address our, our stressors, our life stressors, our, our, our losses, our grief, our sadness? How do we do that in the workplace if we continue to promote those, those systems and that type of leadership where, you know, we as men are supposed to be in control of everything? to do all this decision making and to be the only ones at the table like it, it it just it feels like unachievable and so it's about helping men understand that that this is not good for them either it's certainly not good for the women and the folks who've been rejected from these privileged positions from uh, having access to advancement and you know having access to safe and inclusive workplaces i think I feel, I know, we know that is a basic human right, right? To be able to attend work and, and feel welcomed, included, and be free from harassment and violence. It's a basic human right. So as, as male leaders, we need to think more uh, about that. We don't often think about that in the context of leadership. And so those needs, those opportunities for change, need to be elevated, need to be incorporated into our own idea and definition and measurement of leadership. Such an important conversation because I think, like I said at the beginning, people just don't realize how gender-based violence can be addressed in the workplace actions. Yeah. So it's great that you're spelling it all out for folks. And the other thing I, I'm thinking about when you're talking here is that we need to have respect for men having other roles. Right? Yes. So it's okay yeah. to be at home with the kids. Yes. It's not a problem. You're not, uh, you know, a slacker. It's okay to be in the assistant role in the company as opposed to the boss, you know, and we have to shift that, that those stereotypes essentially, right? And, yeah. and also provide respect for them. So people feel safe getting into those roles that they're not going to be chastised or in any way, you know, in their peer group feeling they're uh, out of step. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that has to do in, with how we have set up systems of compensation and value and advancement within our workplaces, right? It's not, you know, the fact that father takes parental leave is not what is valued within the workplace. It is the working overtime. It's the putting in extra hours and going above and, and beyond. Again, at what cost, at what cost to family life and work-life balance? And so you're so right. I think our our workplaces and institutions need to turn those value systems upside down and, and value time spent with family. We know that workplaces that have more equitable parental leave policies also 
experience a healthier, happier, more productive workforce and more equal workforce as well. When women feel like they are not the only ones who are expected to take time off work, that their careers are not going to be put on hold or or set back as a result of taking that time, and, and that men are equally encouraged to fulfill those roles, both at home in terms of caregiving and raising children and being part of a, an equitable family, but also within the workplace in terms of the emotional labor that needs to be present within a workplace, right? And, and the roles that are usually uh, delegated to, to women, you know, uh, from who gets to chair meetings, who takes the minutes, who arranges refreshments, who looks after the logistics, right? That usually those roles tend to be relegated to women. And how much time do uh, you know, women on boards of directors get to spend sharing their ideas, how valued are their ideas versus those of their male counterparts on, on boards and in decision-making bodies. So yes, yeah, so we have we have to turn it upside down because the status quo is not, it's not acceptable. And it goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, what are the pressing issues is that we need to accelerate this change. And in order for this change to be accelerated, we need to change those systems. And But we also need to change the individual mindsets to the hearts and minds and the knowledge because changing systems alone is not sufficient and changing hearts uh, and minds is not sufficient either because if the systems continue to be the way they are, then it's going to take forever or it's not going to happen. That change is not going to happen at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe you could start telling us now about how allyship is a role here and why it's an important tool in preventing gender-based violence and discrimination. Cause I think that's an important message to get out to folks. So this is part of the of the strategy, right? I often talk to uh, male leaders and men in general and help them understand the impact of this of these inequities, this violence, this exclusion, this underrepresentation on their workplaces, their institutions, and their communities, on themselves as well. And I find that many men haven't had a chance yet to come to that realization, to learn and fully understand that impact. And and they often do uh, because we do it in empathetic ways. We we create safe, brave, non-judgmental, but challenging spaces as in Yes, you're welcome to bring your vulnerabilities and we're going to talk about this to these spaces, but ultimately we're going to leave you with a challenge and that is what will you do? What can you do to change this around? What is going to be your role stepping moving forward? And we talk about allyship as in you know, despite our backgrounds, despite our positions, uh, or or perhaps in spite of our positions as leaders, you know, that we have an opportunity to be allies for change. So we talk about what that means to them as individuals, collectively, as leaders, as, as representatives of institutions or workplaces. And we go through those steps of allyship, which, you know, range from personal accountability, making sure that our attitudes and our behaviors and our beliefs are in line with the kind of change that we need to see in in the world. And then to support these social movements and social justice and and feminism and women's movements and and women's leaders in moving these changes forward. It's not about us taking over. It's about us working side by side with women and folks who've been 
disproportionately impacted by these forms of violence and exclusion to move forward in new ways. It's about influencing our peers. It's about bringing more men into these conversations. It's about uh, being effective bystanders in the workplace, in our boardrooms, and in our institutions to, to make sure that the kinds of cultures and norms that have been and continue to be detrimental to women and folks of, of diverse genders and backgrounds don't don't continue. It's about to it, it's about challenging those inequities as we see them, as we feel them, as we observe them. And ultimately it's also about putting in place the the policies and the frameworks that are rooted in equality versus uh, rooted in centuries and, and decades of exclusion and uh, models and frameworks that are not good for all of us. Yeah, and you know, I think about the language used here. So we talk about feminism, right? And it's often seen as a almost like an annoying word. I don't know what to say. Some people really don't have a positive view of it. Let's put it that way. And I feel that language is an important part of explaining things to these male leaders so that they onboard it. It's a lot what I talk about in my book too. But like when I think about you just hearing that feminism word, it caught my attention. I thought, well, what if you change it to menism? <laughs> what if we had something that they identified more with and claim yeah. as their own to be there? They own it and they can now go forward with it with their intentions of, yeah. of goodwill on this issue. Because I've, I've learned that that is a piece of this conversation is that when you talk in the language of male leaders, they will listen differently on this topic, right? And what, what do you think of that? Well, you know, it's an important conversation to have. And it, I often raise it with uh, with groups of men and male leaders and, and help to deconstruct that perception, that meaning, that resistance to the principles of feminism and, and even that kind of reaction that, uh, that you just mentioned, that kind of automatic resistance, like it's a, you know, all of a sudden my defenses are up because that that word is used. Well, let's let's talk about it. Let's let's uh, talk about where that comes from, the myths and misconceptions that are associated with feminism, the idea that feminism is about hating men and so forth. We go through all of that, and again, we create that that brave space where people can talk about what they've learned over time about feminism, their conceptions, and then we talk about what really is. What what is it about? You know that that it's about creating equal rights for everyone. It's about ending gender-based violence and discrimination. It's about creating equal societies. It's not about removing or taking away rights. It's about elevating rights for everybody and making sure that everybody has an equal stand and, and everybody has a chance to get to the finish line uh, without any barriers or challenges along the way, at least challenges or barriers that are associated with their gender or their identities, right? And who cannot, you know be on board with those ideas. Like if we are true leaders, then we want to adopt those ideals because they're good for us. They're good for our organizations, our communities, our homes, our families, and our institutions, and they're good for our future. So how can we stand in the way? How can we not support a movement that has tried for so long 
mm-hmm. with so much resistance and backlash to create that equal level playing field. It just does not make any sense to me and it should not make any sense to anyone who wants to be a leader because equity and you know promoting uh, change and progress and promoting inclusion and, pr- and redressing historical harms and, and injustices should be part of leadership. And and that's another call for change for workplaces and institutions is to make sure that equity, including gender equality, is added to people's skill sets and that is measured and monitored and reported on. You know, what are leaders doing to promote gender equality and advance the rights and advance change to redress historical exclusions of groups of individuals from the workplace? What are leaders doing? And I think boards of directors, HR departments should be paying really close attention to how job descriptions are set up, how compensation uh, frameworks are developed, how performance evaluation is tracked and monitored and reported on to make sure that these are areas that are included. They're important. They're crucial, I would say, for today's workplace. And if uh, if folks are not aligned with, with that kind of change, that kind of progress, then they're going to hold back their workplace. They're going to hold back their employees and they're going to impact the bottom line of the organization. And they're not contributing to change the change, the kind of large scale and sustainable change that we need to see in our society around these issues. I think for folks too, they don't, again, it's the language. You talk about gender-based violence, people run away. They're like, yeah. It's not my job. I don't. Why am I listening to court? This is. I'm a. I'm a corporate person. Why am I listening yeah. to this? You know, they they completely look at it as outside the corporate world. Yeah, it's because of that they are a corporate person that they should be paying and attention and listening to this. Yeah, it's exactly that. Clip. People don't realize how they have a a role to play in corporate Canada and yeah. in forest companies, yeah. and it's easy to dismiss it and say. That's for other people to sort out. That's a social entrepreneurial issue, or that's a not-for-profit or volunteer, you know, group or something like that. And they don't yeah. recognize what they can do and how much impact they can have. I think that's the piece that really yeah. always irks me a little bit. Is like you have so much potential to make positive change. You know, why aren't you aware of that? But I I, I respect, too, that they've got a lot of other things on their plate, but you can certainly broaden your um, scope of policies and messaging and make it much more inclusive of these ideas such that it's a safe space to come to work and a safe space to get support if needed if you're dealing with stuff at home, too, you know? Yeah, for sure. And this is an important thing to have on their plate. It's just as equally important as the uh, the other pieces. So they have to find space. Yeah. to deal with it. And in some cases, it has to be prioritized. And, and it's interesting because corporations usually receive a wake-up call when there is a significant uh, incident or series of incidents that come to the surface that all of a sudden is in the public eye. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, is uh, there's no more choice for this company, for this corporation than to you know go into crisis mode. And I find that so sad because we know how to do this work. We've been advocating for that change for so long, uh, yet it's not until you know someone is, is significantly harmed in the workplace, within the institution for, for leaders to step forward. And in some cases, it's too late. You know, uh, Hockey Canada is an example. You know, it lacked leadership, it lacked will, and everybody was asked to leave. 
it's too late. Well, they're a super, they're a super signal uh, for other companies now, yeah. organizations, as you know. Yeah, absolutely. So we we have to get those guys who believe in in ending this kind of culture to step forward and to be more vocal, more outspoken, and say, "This is not my hockey. This is not my practice." You know, not on my rink, not in my community. Right. And, and uh, even even within that context, uh, there's, you know, really great examples of change and a need for change. And but we got to do things in different ways. Like, you know, that's an area like sports and hockey and other hyper masculine athletics, you know, for too long, gender equality, gender based violence was seen as like an outside issue. Well, it's not. It's always been an inside issue. It's just that it's been swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. What do you say to people who say, it's going too fast. Well, I share back that stat that I mentioned earlier. You know, according to, I think it's the, the World Bank, you know, if we continue to move at the pace that we're moving today, it will take us another two centuries to achieve equality. Is that too fast? Oh, no, I'm totally impatient and I'm saying it's way overdue and we can't afford it. We can't afford it. And I don't mean afford it just from a, a monetary perspective, from a, an ethical, moral, uh, human rights perspective. We cannot afford to wait another 200 years for these changes to happen. It's not good for any of us unfortunately people feel that it's not their responsibility right so that's where it starts is like recognizing what role they have to play and implementing that ownership of your own actions as you say and systemic actions that you can implement with as leaders but i find that i often hear that that oh like with the project i'm doing for the forest sector some people are saying oh that's going really fast you know and it's like really we're mm-hmm. just uh we're just trying to move things along here so yeah but I have to say, we have just recently put out a couple of weeks ago, a declaration of intent for the forest sector in Canada with a number of signatories to it that are committed to diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And it carries with it a number of clear actions that they say they want to do. So to me, that has never been done before. That's the first time. So that's exciting. And I see that as progress. Uh, obviously, you need to uh, walk the talk. So that's the next uh, challenge. But uh, one thing at a time. So yeah. I see a little hope for that. But are you hopeful that we can achieve culture change in our lifetime so our workplaces and communities are truly gender equitable? I, I am. I am hopeful because I see those small changes as just the example that you gave, you know, as as examples of you know, in the forestry sector, seeing the forest beyond the trees, right? Or whatever that expression is, we can't just focus on like individual change, we got to focus on systemic change, we've got to look at the health of the bigger forest, not mm-hmm. just of the individual tree. So and we all have a role to play in that, of course. And, and you know, the forestry sector has traditionally been a male dominated sector. So for anyone that says or thinks that this is not an issue that they should be addressing, of course, of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, you know, look in your own backyard. Look at you know the diversity of your teams. Look at the rates of of sexual harassment. Look at retention of of women in in roles and and so much more. You know, look at your leadership boards, your board of directors. Look at the sector in general. And it's clear that everybody has to play a role. We can't. It's and the roles are are diverse and multiple, and they need to be about individual change. They need to be about 
about, you know, challenging those uh, sexist, misogynistic, homophobic jokes that happen on a day-to-day basis, all the way to uh, ensuring that our boards are representative of the communities that we work in and, and want to, to be represented of. So there are lots of really great examples and really great leaders who are stepping up, who are you know, part of that change of that culture change, but we need to accelerate it. We need to to find ways to do this at a larger scale and, and to continue with that, you know, on the ground impact and the systemic impact as well. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, but we got to do the work and it's, and it's hard work, but it's worth it. And it's something that motivates me and it should motivate everybody. It is hard work and it is rewarding when you see change. I totally agree with that. Yeah. One thing I say to folks is that forests require diversity of trees to be resilient, yeah. to have a resilient forest. That's right. And That's it's right. the same with the workplace. You have to have diversity to make it resilient so that when things go down, you have the most innovative team on board to make you know decisions and find innovative pathways forward. So yeah, so, and but- diverse, resilient forest, you know, will give us the oxygen and the air that we so much need, and 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 the resources and and the diversity of the the creatures that that live within that forest. And we need to sustain that change, that diversity, and we need to amplify it. Yeah. I talk about uh, it in terms of a social ecosystem. Yes. We have an ecosystem, environmental ecosystem in forestry, just as you're describing with the creatures that live in it. But we also have a social ecosystem of people that uh, are working within it and recognize that if it has diversity, it will just be that much more resilient and stronger. One last thing I want to ask you then, Umberto, before we leave is what is one takeaway you would give to leaders to think about on this topic about what they can do to take action? So, you know, the, the most important piece is, is to recognize that you have a role to play and accept that role and then take start taking steps and sometimes there are small steps and align yourself with other allies and support the folks around you that are calling for change. Support them, stand beside them, listen to them, listen to their experiences, ask them, what can I do to support you? Those are the greatest uh, principles of allyship. No, it's not. It's again, it's not about overtaking this this work. It's about aligning yourself and using your power and your privilege for for good and to create these changes. So that's that's a much better way forward than than wondering, you know, do I play a role? Do I have a role to play? Is this even an issue for me? Is this, you know, we're we're working in an industry, you know, what does this have to do with us? You know, be be proactive, like turn it around and think about what you can do to make a difference because everybody everybody there's no person on this planet that i would say they don't have a role to play everybody needs to play a role in this this is a collective change that is long overdue totally agreed well thank you so much umberto for your time and all of your thoughts today i respect your passion for the topic and commitment and uh, i'm following your work with much interest and hopefully we'll see you again on this show again Likewise, Kelly, thank you for the amazing work and advocacy that you do. And uh, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for inviting me and White Ribbon to be part of this conversation. Gender, diversity, and inclusion are crucial to the advancement of a thriving and resilient forest sector. As we continue to grow and change, we all have a role to play in making our sector a place where everyone has the support they need to succeed and thrive. 
For more information on how you can take action and help make a difference, follow Free to Grow in Forestry on social media or visit us at www.freetogrowinforestry.ca. And if you have a story you think should be heard about an experience you have had or what you would like to see happen in the Canadian forest sector workforce, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at info at freetogrowinforestry.ca. Together, we can move forestry forward.